Renaissance Effect. What's going on, guys? My very special guest today is Kenny Kaneko, the number one stand-up paddle racer in all of Japan. He is a three-time All Japan champion, 2018 Asia champion. Interestingly, he was born in Chigasaki but raised in Southern California. Kenny started surfing from a young age but actually was drawn to another sport entirely, a sport played on land. And that experience actually helped to shape his career in the water. We dive deep into that story on the podcast. In the second year of college, he started outrigger canoeing under the influence of his father and became addicted once again to the sea. Once he started sup racing full-time in 2013, he won the All Japan Sup Racing Championship the following year. Since 2015, he has raced overseas. In 2016, he won the second Hong Kong International Sup Championship. In 2018, he won his third All Japan title. Kenny is known as one of the absolute hardest working sup racers out there. I interviewed him right before his most recent Molokai to Oahu Sup Race, which is known as one of the most brutal races on earth. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Kenny, and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Let's get to it. All right, Kenny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah. Super appreciate your uh, taking the time. Yeah, excited. Never done a podcast before, so. Nice. <laughs> First time. Um, yeah, so we can just jump right in. Okay. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, you growing up in uh, Japan and California, but I know you were born in Japan. Yes, um, I was born in Tokyo, but um, and then I lived there till I was eight, but my father had spent um, his college years in San Diego, and he always wanted to raise his kids in the u.s wow that's interesting so when i was eight and my brother was five our family just kind of suddenly moved to california and that would be is that pretty much like a non-traditional thing to do for a japanese you know family at that time yeah to? so a lot of people do move overseas but it's usually for you know, their dad works at a big corporate company and they get sent to an office overseas. But for my parents, it was kind of just raising us outside the box, like the Japanese society, because they kind of wanted us to have freedom when we were kids and stuff and experience everything that, I guess, America had to offer or what he felt like America had to offer. So it was um, it was pretty irregular at the time. Yeah, because yeah, I know in Japan, starting from a young age, like preschool, there's a lot of that, you know, social sort of engineering that starts mm -hmm. to happen, right? Which, you know, has good and bad, but yeah, it's definitely more regimented. Yeah, you know? so my dad is not very traditional. Like, he's never worked as a traditional businessman. He's always kind of been a entrepreneur kind of guy. Um and he just didn't like that system. Like he didn't want us to play just one sport, you know, when we're still in elementary school, you know, he wanted us to experience different things and not have to go to like cram school they have in Japan yeah. from like when you're 
in elementary school, you know, and yeah. he kind of just wanted us to have that freedom as kids. So that's kind of, we didn't have visas. We didn't have green cards or anything. We just kind of, he just all of a sudden said in two weeks, we're going to America. Wow. And we lived <laughs> out of a hotel for three weeks. And then, um, yeah, we, I don't, I actually don't really know how we got the visa to stay there for so for 10 years you know but yeah they, he kind of worked it out for us yeah i think a lot of people get like lawyers or whatever and just make it happen yeah so um, it was like we weren't financially we didn't have you know the money or connection with the lawyers or anything so i i just remember my dad like moving us and then he was working under the table oh like wow biking 60 kilometers one way on the highway at a sushi bar in laguna beach wow and he would do that after we went to sleep and he'd come home at like 2 a.m and then he was kind of grinding away for like two three years but i guess he really felt like um like that needed to be done for us to be raised the way he wanted that's amazing yeah actually i could have never done that he was like I think my age right now, I'm 31 and wow, I could have never done that. Yeah. So he really had like a laser like focus on his dream. Yeah. And just made it happen. I think it was, um, yeah, he just, he was kind of an outcast in the traditional Japanese societies. And he always, he always, he's kind of old school. So he always thought, you know, like the American dream or you know right. that kind of image and um he kind of wanted us to have that yeah so i really appreciate it now back then i was like why are we doing this you know we had <laughs> yeah. like a super old volvo that would stop every three days you know and kind of complaining all the time but now that i think about it it's like it's something pretty special yeah what did he end up doing um so after that <laughs> initial you know round of struggle what did he end up doing there so he did the sushi bar for about two years and then during the day he would be selling water outside a supermarket like a lot of the illegal immigrants do in right. california and um and my parents started doing these little businesses little bento um they did like a bento business for a year and it got super popular and busy, but they were cooking outside from their home kitchen. So they couldn't sustain it. So they cut it out. And then they started um, doing exporting, like having an exporting business to Japan, like whatever people in Japan wanted from the US, they would have it get shipped to our house and then send it to the U.S. So wow. send it back to Japan. So right now, like it would never work. But back then, you know, it was like year 2000, right? Like the Internet just started like kind of growing and they had the address in the U.S. and Gap and Old Navy and all that kind of stuff. You could not buy in Japan. So people would order through my parents. My parents would order. Wow. And so it was kind of that business and that took off like and from then on the last five years in the U.S. we were pretty financially stable. So wow. it, they kind of worked it out. Um, 
my mom was a web designer. She kind of learned on her own. And really, yeah. So <laughs> That's amazing. So they they knew how to grind for sure. Yeah. How did that uh, experience? I guess of because my mom actually was an entrepreneur as well. So when okay. my parents got divorced, she, you know, typical single mom with two kids, and she had her back against the wall and. She just started a business, you know, and yeah. just like your parents, it, it really took off and, you know, she did really well. But growing up in that environment at the time, you know, as a kid, I just hated it. Yeah. You know, it was just so brutal. Like your, your mom's just working all the time. You never see her, you know, and it's just like, why are we doing this? Why can't you just get a regular job? Yeah. But now I really appreciate it. You know, looking back, it's just like an amazing thing. Yeah. How did that, you know, affect you looking back? So, um... For me, for me and my brother, it was kind of my parents were like they kept busy, but they did it when we were at school or um, or like when we were asleep. Um, they always so I, my brother and I played soccer and we were playing soccer every day, every weekend. They'd My dad would have to drive us and it, it was like a whole family thing. And um, basically like they it always felt like my parents were always in the house there for us so um i'm sure they were grinding away but i didn't really feel like they were gone really i always i always felt like how come my parents are always home like you know like <laughs> i want to have friends over right, but right why are you always home like don't you um, go to work kind of stuff but I honestly don't know how they made it work, but my dad was like a really hands-on parent. Like he would run with us in the morning before school. Wow. For soccer training, take us to soccer after school um, on the weekends, take us surfing and then in the afternoon, take us to soccer games. And just like, he always tells us like, he didn't do anything that he wanted to do like his hobbies or anything for 20 years wow. until we were like 20 and my brother was like 18. So he kind of put himself sacrificed his time for us. So I guess that's kind of how, how it worked for our family. That's, that reminds me of a story I heard about my great grandfather, the one that came from Hiroshima, but mm. he, when he left Japan uh, to, you know, follow the American dream. Yeah. And he came here and they're really poor when, at the beginning and they just had no money. And whatever, you know, little candies or sweets that they had in the house, he would, you know, give it to my my grandmother mm. and the, the other siblings. Yeah. And they'd always ask him, oh, don't you want some? And he'd say, no, I don't like that stuff. Like, I, I hate sweets. Yeah. But actually, he loved sweets. Yeah. But he just wanted to sacrifice for his kids. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It's a very Japanese, like, way of living, I guess. You know, it's like the elders or, like, the parents or usually the dads sacrifice themselves so much. Right. For the family. And that's kind of in a way, a traditional Japanese family is also like that because a businessman in Japan works, leaves the house at 6 a.m., comes home at 10, yeah. five days a week. And it's they're doing that so their family can, you know, 
pay tuition and live yeah. the life they want. So it's misunderstood, but I always, I'm like big respect to those guys, you know, like they're sacrificing their whole lives just, just to make money for the family. Like I could, I could never do that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. The the first family I homestayed with in Japan, this was like in 1992, I think is the first time I went to Japan Yeah, in high school. Yeah. And I homestayed with a family in, in uh, Tokyo. And I remember the father getting home at midnight. Mm-hmm. And when we were still kind of, you know, messing around in the house or playing video games. And then, like, he woke me up in the morning as he was leaving by accident. He's just making noise or whatever, yeah. you know. And then, because uh, I was sleeping, I don't know, in the living room or something. But this is, I looked at my watch and it was like 5 a.m. Yeah. So he would get home at midnight, and then by 5 a.m. he's gone. Yeah. And he did that every day. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God. A lot of my friends do that, too, and I honestly don't know how they do it. Yeah, it's like what I do for a living is, like, it's, it's nothing compared to the stuff they have to endure, you know? Yeah. But that, that leads to my next question, which is, so there's that sense of duty and sacrifice built into the you know Japanese culture. Yeah. But I noticed um, with a lot of my friends there, their fathers, you know, did the same thing. So they worked really hard, and but they weren't very hands-on. Yeah. So do you think your dad was also you know again operating outside of the box? Yeah. That way. So. Um, the thing with my dad is his parents were never hands-on. Like, they were kind of pretty well off, but he was the third son. Oh, okay. So, like, they did not, they were they were never at his, you know, like, rugby games or never at, you know, their, like, talent show or whatever they had. Like, just never there. And um, I think that made him want to be there for his kids when he grew up. So I think that's why he was so hands-on. And also another thing is when like we, he didn't work for a company that had an office in the US. Like when we moved to the US, it was kind of like just our family against the world kind of thing. And in an immigrant family, I think you have that. Like you have a very strong bond with the family after you move because you don't know anybody. My mom never spoke Japanese or English. And it's like, you can only count on each other. You know, you don't have friends from back in the day. like, so I think that's why he was so hands-on with us. And it, it definitely made our family tighter. And that's kind of why I feel like I would want to live overseas with my family because a lot of people say that a lot of my friends that grew up abroad in a untraditional way say like their family bond is so strong just because they've only got their family to depend on you know so I don't even know if my dad had or my parents had like friends for the 10 years we were in America wow like it's yeah, really tough. My 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 friends' parents are like the soccer parents, you know, but I don't know if they would really consider them like friends you'd just go out and have a beer with, you know. Right. And yeah, so I think in that sense my dad was very 
out of the box in that way too. Yeah. I have a lot of um, friends and, and a bunch of acquaintances I've met in Japan actually that their dream is to live outside of Japan. Like be in the be it in the U.S., some want to go to Europe, um, Southeast Asia, but they're all they have this dream that they want to get out of Japan, but they have these jobs that are you know comfortable and they're working a lot. Yeah. Just like you yeah. know culturally, that's that's what it is. But yeah. they're so they're comfortable financially, but their dream is sort of not being realized. What yeah. I guess what advice, if any, based on your experience. Um, would you give someone that has that dream in Japan and, you know, they're trying to get out? So, I mean, I think comfort in terms of, you know, if you work as a businessman, as long as you're there for those hours, you're getting paid and your family is, you know, well off and you can live in like Japan's a very comfortable place. You know, food is cheap commute is easy you know you don't need to drive like you can drink in public get wasted yeah. and <laughs> still get home yeah. with your wallet in your pocket you know yeah. like <laughs> yeah. it doesn't work out like that you know it's not scary living in japan and it's so comfortable but at the same time like i think a lot of japanese people like that warm water you know like they're like you see people come, Japanese people come to Oahu, right? Because it's half Japan, you know? Like, they don't have to speak English to get mm -hmm. around, but you go to Maui or, like, some other place and you don't see many Japanese because you can't get around without the Japanese language or, or without speaking English, you know? Yeah. So I think an advice is, like, as long as... It's with anything, but as long as you put your mind to it and you just got to do it, like if they want to live in Southeast Asia, like even if they don't have a job, like with their life savings, they could probably live there for 10 years, you know, comfortably. Yeah. But it would be starting something new. And I think that scares a lot of people. So Japanese people like comfort, you know, it's they're not like very outgoing they they like hanging out with the people they've always hung out with and that's kind of where i'm not very japanese because i grew up in the u.s so that would be my advice to them yeah yeah i have the same sort of philosophy i guess with that which is you know i think when you have a dream like that just like your parents did pretty much exactly i think you almost just have to put yourself in that situation where you don't really have too many other options, yeah. you're just, boom, you're there. Yeah. And then you'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, they figured it out. Yeah. So, but it's scary. You know, it doesn't it matter is. where you're from. It's, it is. <laughs> it's, but it's the 21st century, you know, it's like, as long as you have a credit card and an iPhone, yeah. like, <laughs> you're, you're going to be able to get around. Yeah. <laughs> like there's, so it's, I think it would have been tougher 20, 30 years ago because if you go, then you can't keep communicating with your friends in Japan yeah. or whatever. But now, like, even when I go to races around the world, like, I'm, I don't feel that far away from my family. You know, if this was 30 years ago, like, I don't think I'd be traveling as much because I wouldn't want to be away from yeah. my family. 
So it's getting easier, I think, like globalization working itself. But the biggest thing for Japanese people is the language. Like, Japanese people cannot speak much English. Like, it's pretty crazy. You go everywhere else in the world and you can get around with English. But in Japan, it's hard to get around with English, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. You've been to Japan. It's just recently they started. You know, the train started updating the signage into English. Yeah, yeah. But when I was first going there, there、yeah. was nothing and no Google Maps. Yeah. I mean, it was easy to get lost. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I went back to Japan in、um, 2006, I was always getting lost trying to get to places. And now it's, you know, you've got the iPhones, so it kind of helps, helps you a lot. And because. Tokyo is having the Olympics next year. Like, everything is becoming like, has like an English translation on the trains and stuff.、Yeah. But still, if you go to a rural area in Japan and if you don't speak Japanese, like, you're, you're going to get lost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or even the dialect. I remember going to、um, Utsunomiya. Yeah. And yeah. The, the dialect is different. So、yeah. people were, I was trying to talk to people, and it's like, wow, I can't understand exactly what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's、uh, like dialects in Japan is crazy. I still don't understand some of the dialects when I travel, but you know, that's, it's, it's getting easier. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. What was the culture shock like, if any? Because you came to the States when you were like, what, eight or eight. something? Yeah. yeah. So, what was that transitional experience like? And what was it like growing up in California? So,、um, language came easy because we were young. I was eight, and my, bro- my brother, it was even easier. Like, we, did, we didn't speak much English at all, but we watched、um, like Looney Tunes every day. And Went to ESL. ESL is like English、yeah. for your second language classes for six months. And we didn't really speak English, but my dad, being who he is, took us out of ESL and just put us in public school. Like, and we played sports. So,、um, sports is, you know, a universal language. We played soccer and we were good, good at soccer for our age. So,、um, that like helped us make a lot of friends, and we could speak, we could communicate、um, in the, within a year, you know? So, and the biggest culture shock I remember is、um, there was grass everywhere.、Oh, like,、yeah. grass fields <laughs> everywhere、That's、to、right. play soccer. In Japan, everything is dirt. Yeah. Because we, Grass is, grass is rare, you know. To so, this day, actually. To this I day. I still see dirt. Yeah. Yeah.、Um, elementary schools, middle schools, even high schools, a lot of their soccer field is dirt. So you can't slide tackle or anything. Like,、um, so that was the biggest culture shock was, was the grass. Like, <laughs> 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 Interesting. Yeah, I just remember, like, wow. I can play soccer on grass because that's what pros played on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have any,、um, like, I know a lot of friends I have that moved to the States from 
either Japan or uh, you know Hong Kong, mm-hmm. they had a little bit of an identity crisis because yeah. you know they're they're a fish out of water. Yeah, their parents are fish out of water, yeah. and you know they start to some of them start to look on their parents as you know not being you know cool like yeah. their friends' parents. Did you go through any of that stuff? I had a I had a big identity crisis when I lived in the U.S. and um, and when I went back to Japan. But you know, like my identity crisis in the U.S. was after the first year or two. Like usually Japanese kids go to like Sunday Japanese school, but my dad didn't want us going to Japanese school, and um, so we never went because we were playing sports. And we were going surfing, and um, basically, so I didn't think I was Japanese. All my I ha- I lived in a area called Irvine, um, and it's lots of Japanese kids there. And um, but I didn't think I was one of them. So when I think about it now, I think, gosh, I was so stupid. But like I remember in like sixth grade, I would my mom would make me bento box and I hated it because all my friends had <laughs> like brown paper bag, like grilled right. cheese or PB and J and chips. Yeah. And I had this like really nice bento, <laughs> which actually sounds and, better, which sounds so <laughs> yeah. much better right now. But I would every day trade it with my friends. Wow. Cause I didn't want to be seen with a bento. Yeah. And in high school, like, the Japanese kids would be hanging out together and everyone else would be at lunch tables eating, but Japanese kids would be like in the hallway eating their bento. And I would just like frown upon it. Like, wow, what are you guys doing? (laughs) But now (laughs) when I think about it, I'm like, gosh, I was so stupid. Like (laughs) I would, I, I consider myself whitewashed for sure. Like, but now because I'm back in Japan and like seeing Japan as an outsider, I'm so proud of my Japanese heritage that like, I think I'm more proud of being Japanese than Japanese people are, you know, cause I see what kind of, it's an amazing country with a, an amazing culture, but my years in the U S not something to be proud of, but for sure identity crisis, I look Japanese, I spoke no Japanese. And even now, people call me by my um, first name, Kenny. But my real name is Kenny Chiro. Oh, okay. But when I moved to the US, they couldn't pronounce Kenny Chiro. So all my friends would call me Ken, and they'd start calling me Kenny. And even in Japan now, like at races and stuff, like everyone's got Chinese character names or like kanji names. And my name would be an alphabet, but I'm Japanese, you know? So I still have an identity crisis back home because I compete overseas and everything. And they go, oh, but he's, you know, not Japanese. But oh, yeah. my passport is Japanese. I, I'm 100% Japanese. So I think it'll stick with me for life. You know, <laughs> but I guess I'm, you know, that's, yeah, I, I still have that crisis. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate. Cause I'm, I mean, I'm a Hafu myself. Yeah. So growing up, you know, you get teased from 
either side like yeah. in hawaii it's either like oh you jap or yeah. oh, you howley yeah you know yeah. you just never really fit in yeah you know yeah and um but just like you you know i grew up with a strong you know knowledge and connection to my japanese side yeah the culture and so i really i mean it's a big deal for me just like for you like i really appreciate that culture yeah and i'm really into it like i'm always reading about it yeah and i have all these books on musashi and yeah you know it's just fascinating um super proud of it you're probably but more japanese than japanese people in like, some ways yeah in yeah. some ways you know yeah. they don't study that kind of stuff yeah yeah i still have that though i i mean i'm definitely hafu because i have like a strong you know affinity to my american side too. yeah I'm I'm really proud of that culture. Yeah. And you know, but definitely like pulled in both directions. For so, sure. Yeah. Like I did not want my parents speaking in public because they had a Japanese accent. Yeah. Like it was just embarrassing. Like well, I'm just <laughs> don't like don't say that. <laughs> you know? Like don't talk yeah. to my friends kind of thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, but you know. Yeah. What got you into surfing? So was it your dad? So yeah, my dad surfed um, in San Diego when he was at college. And I actually started surfing. My dad got me in the water when I was maybe five in Japan. And I hated it. Like, wow. Because back then, like, surfing was like what old people did in Japan. Really? Yeah. Like, not a lot of young kids did, like keikis like they didn't surf wow I, I would never have thought that yeah. i always thought surfing in japan was sort of for the young people no like, i mean equipment's too expensive so even now it's hard to be young and surfing yeah but boards are super expensive there yeah it's like three for, times as much or something yeah it's like you would have to pay close to 1500 for a short board which is ridiculous yeah but anyways, yeah, my dad got me in the water. I hated it. Um, I did. I never wanted to go, but my dad would keep taking me. And I got to a point where I could like take off on a wave. Right. But I quit. And then when I moved to California, um, I think it was like in middle school, like I swam too. And then I did a, a year of water polo and all my friends like started bodyboarding. And I was like, wow, I know how to do that. So I got into bodyboarding and then everyone started surfing. So I kind of like took it back again. And I, I got hooked on surfing for until I moved back to Japan. Yeah. So it's almost like a, in a way it was like a gateway into acceptance into yeah. that culture, right? Yeah, it was. Because you had that skill that you didn't know. You kind of didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, I had no idea. Like, I never thought I would surf in my life again. But, like, all the cool kids were doing it. And then they were all my friends. So I was like, oh, but like, I can do that. I've done that before. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So, like, I thank my parents for it or my dad for it now. You know, it's like because... He got me doing it for two years when I was young. Like, it kind of helped me make friends and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, what other... So you mentioned, I think you played soccer. Yeah. So I was um, really into soccer. Like, when I was... So the reason we moved to Irvine was because 
I um, wanted to become a professional soccer player from when I was like in kindergarten. And my dad was full on like, I'm doing everything so you can become professional. And then Irvine had a club team that was the best in the state. Wow. So that's kind of why we moved there. But little did we know that it was one of the highest income cities in oh. in southern california and my parents really suffered from it yeah but um so i played soccer at the state regional and on the national team until so i was on the u15 u.s national team for soccer and then um i actually moved to japan to play professionally so i was that was my sport like i i didn't I didn't care, really care at, you know, when I was a junior or senior in high school, like about surfing anymore, because I was going to go pro straight out of high school. And I moved back to Japan because I got scouted by a professional team there. But in my first three months, I had the culture shock and um, I tore my ACL. Oh, so, man. And that was my second surgery. And, um, they had a contract for me, but because I tore it so early in the contract, they kind of wanted to pull back on it. Yeah. They wanted out. So, and doing rehab in a country where you're not comfortable with the language and stuff, like I just couldn't take it anymore. And I decided, you know, like I'm, I'm quitting. So that was a really hard decision for me. Like my parents moved back to Japan because I moved back to Japan for soccer. So wow, so it's really heavy. Yeah, it was. It was probably the darkest moment in like my life, I guess. But now that I think about, I have a lot of guys I used to play with on the U.S. national team right now. Um, wow. There's a there's a kid that was originally from Hawaii that moved to Irvine to play soccer. He was three years younger than me and he's on the national team. Wow. Yeah. So, but I'm kind of glad that I didn't take that route because I'm pretty happy doing what I do right now. Yeah. You know, things for happen sure. for a reason, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know exactly uh, physically what you went through. I tore my ACL early last year. Wow. And, um, yeah, that recovery is just unbelievably hard. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Doing what? Uh, I do judo and jujitsu. Okay. Um, and yeah, someone threw me but did the throw wrong and ended up sort of slide tackling my knee. Yeah. When it was locked and it just bent sideways and just tore the MCL and the ACL mm. all yeah. in one shot. So yeah, for me, like it was... Um, I was always used to playing on grass. And when I moved back to Japan, we were playing on AstroTurf. And um, Oh man, this grass thing, like yeah, it's a it's, common thing that keeps coming up. Yeah. So basically when I took like when I went to shoot the ball, um, my cleats got stuck in the AstroTurf and my momentum was going forward, but my foot was stuck on grass and um, that just tore my ACL. Wow. So, and the amount of training or practice they do in Japan at the youth level is three times what we did in the U.S., you know. In the U.S., you'd practice five times a week, hour and a half a day max. 
in Japan, we were doing four hours a day for six days a week. And I just couldn't take it. Like, and I wasn't getting teased because of the language, but, you know, when you're playing at the professional level, like, you go in there as a nobody and you're a threat to them. You know, yeah. it's like, if I get the contract, they don't get the contract. So, like, you know, people were ignoring me, whatever, they wouldn't pass me the ball. And, like, doing rehab in that kind of environment was like, I did three months of it, but I just couldn't take it anymore, you know? Like, yeah. So that was, that was tough. Yeah. That kind of reminds me um, of the, uh, the rock, you know, when he was trying to play NFL mm -hmm. and he just got injured mm. and then eventually, you know, he just couldn't perform. I think he went to Canada to play. Yeah. But he eventually got cut from that too. Yeah. And then that was the darkest period, I think. So he says in his life, where he just yeah. ended up with no money, no prospects, yeah, nothing, yeah. And then it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to him, yeah. You know, so <laughs> it's crazy how things work out like that. Because my dad always, the only thing he did when we were in the U.S. was paddle. He paddled outrigger at one of the clubs in California, and I hated it. Like I was like, why do you paddle? Like. <laughs> It's so boring. It's, it's like, like work. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like you you don't even catch waves like, you know, like why do you paddle? But and then I had a big falling out when I decided to call it quits on soccer with him cuz it was kind of his dream too and he wanted me to keep pushing through the rehab, but I was like, no, I can't take it anymore. So that was the only time we like had a falling out and didn't talk for 6 months. Wow. In the same house like didn't have a conversation he was like super depressed and but if it wasn't for that I wouldn't I would have never picked up a paddle because I had to find something to do and surfing wasn't an option for me in Japan like I lived five minutes away from a like in Chigasaki which is you know got pretty good waves but I hate the surfing vibe in Japan like you don't go out there and talk story, you know? It's like everyone's worried about themselves. And I remember when I quit soccer and went surfing, like I asked someone, you know, what time is it? You know, cause I didn't have a watch. And they just looked at me like, like I cussed them out or something. And wow. So the vibe is so different. It was pretty intense. <laughs> surfing used to be my, you know, the thing I did to relax. But in Japan, it was just like frustrating. So my dad was like, yeah, let's paddle. And then we went out and then it was a windy day and we caught some bumps on the two man canoe. And I was like hooked. Like I was like, oh, you don't get cut off out there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And then what, what was the, um, I guess, transition from the outrigger to the stand-up paddle so um so i paddled outrigger a lot when i was in college and um even after college i was working part-time and i was like training all the time to do the molokai race on the one man and 
that was just my like my goal you know I always played sports and when I played sports I my goal was to play in the world cup you know and when I realized that there was like a world championship of outrigger canoe like that's what I wanted to pursue so I was doing that and I I was coming to Hawaii every year and um some guys you know like a little older than me that I admired you know like were taking up stand-up like stand-up racing was kind of growing in Hawaii and in the U.S. and I was like I should do that like I could I could probably do pretty good and it was maybe three four years late in Japan and it was like the racing was just starting and I started racing in Japan won some races and then board brands like offered to give me boards and stuff and I kind of got hooked and um, it's different from Hawaii but in Japan there's a lot of opportunity in sponsorship and stuff like and um, I wanted to take advantage of it you know it's like if I could do anything to stay on the water and it be my job like I'm gonna jump on it you know so I kind of pursued the paddling and you know luckily I paddle as a professional paddler right now yeah so it kind of worked out in the past four years I know with the sponsorship thing I I first saw that uh with um I think it's Kanoa yeah yeah so he's one of the highest paid surfers yeah on the tour yeah even though he's not necessarily ranked you know or doesn't have the you know the long history of pedigree like you know a kelly slater yeah those guys but the sponsorships for him and then now that he's moved i mean he's he's kind of like you where he grew up yeah. in california huntington beach yeah and then he went back to japan now yeah for the olympics and all that stuff so i think in terms of sports in general like america australia you guys have so many good athletes that it's hard for a minor sport to become a profession yeah you've got so many major sports you know like paddling is never gonna like it's hard for it to become a profession yeah. but in in japan even surfers you know you have so many good surfers like if kanoa was white you know and he was a white guy from huntington beach like he wouldn't have the half the endorsement yeah. money he does but he because, wouldn't stand out at all exactly but because he's a japanese guy you know like fighting on the world stage like there's a lot of companies that want to back him up yeah and sponsor him and it's the same in tennis you know like kei nishikori like he is a an amazing tennis player like top five in the world but he makes you know he makes, I think, after Roger Federer, the most endorsement money because he is Japanese. Like, he's got all these companies that want to sponsor him. So in that sense, like, there's no reason not to capitalize on it, right? right. Like, and then for me, like, it's influencing the Asian paddlers, you know, like, because... In water sports, it's hard for um, 
like a Japanese person to be super competitive on the world stage. And I kind of want to, because I feel like I'm not Japanese, like there's no difference between a Japanese person and, and any other race for me because I grew up in the US. Right. So I kind of want the people in Japan to realize that like it doesn't matter what race you are, you know, like you could be competitive as long as you put your mind into it. So that's kind of my my um, lifelong goal, you know, is to kind of push as hard as I can so it's easier for the next generation of Japanese paddlers to be competitive on the world stage. Yeah. Yeah, that um, I remember when Naomi Osaka, I think, yeah. right, she won. And there's that big controversy in Japan, the race controversy, yeah. you know. Like, is she Japanese or, <laughs> you know, Japan's really tough. very, um, very behind in that sense. Like, even if you saw a Mexican guy that's U.S. citizen. Right. You would never be like, oh, no, but he's Mexican. Yeah. Like, he's it's like U.S. Nothing. citizen, you know, yeah. like, but. We're Japan, such a melting pot. Exactly. Japan is such a. What do you call it? Like, it's a like homogenous, a homogenous society. society. Yeah. Like if you're mixed or half, half like yeah. they're going to be like, but you're really not. <laughs> yeah, you're you not. Know? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, even if even like you, like if yeah. you're full Japanese, but yeah. you weren't really, you know, you didn't grow yeah. up there or whatever. You're an outsider. It's I mean. like, yeah, it's like. But he grew up eating food in America. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It doesn't make that big of a difference but yeah your ancestors probably go back thousands of years exactly the registry exactly (laughs) but it's not enough you know but i'm sure like kanoa gets so much shit for it yeah i'm i'm sure he has a hard time because he probably gets a lot of shit from people outside of japan like oh you sell out kind of yeah, thing yeah he did yeah yeah and then there's a lot of people from the states that yeah you know, saw what he did and they're yeah. like man what are you doing yeah and but. in Japan you know they're like yeah but he's Japanese but he's not you know <laughs> yeah. like it's it's almost sad because they know that he's gonna be the one that qualifies for the Olympics and there's so many people that are like sour over it that they're like just dissing him like but he's not even like he can't even write japanese but that doesn't even matter you know like that shouldn't matter he's 100 percent japanese like so japan's a hard place to live in that sense yeah yeah i know when i went to japan on that that trip in 92 it's for a wrestling um tournament Mm -hmm. and uh they were just shocked that I could write my name in katakana. Okay. And they're just like, kept asking me about it. Yeah. Like, how, how can you write Japanese? And yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I just, I took some classes in high school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like, about yeah. it, you know. Seriously. It's not that big of a deal. It's not. It's like, <laughs> it's like we, a lot of people in California can speak Spanish, you know, right. but you don't go like, whoa, you speak Spanish. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's kind of natural, you know. Yeah. 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 Sure. Um, so you've done a lot of races. I was curious what the toughest race was that you've done. Um, so in terms of stand up and, um, like the one man canoe, 
like Molokai, the race from Molokai to Oahu that I'll be doing um, for my second time on the stand-up, but it'll be my 11th crossing in total when you include stand-up, OC1, and the six-man canoe. Wow. Like that, that is, is the toughest because it's open ocean, you know? It's like it, the conditions can get rough and it's, it's not like, uh, usually other races in J- or around the world is like 10 kilometer under an hour race, which is, and you're just racing each other. It's kind of like a cycling or a marathon race, but this Molokai race is like, it's, it's a race, but it's, but it's not, it's, whatever you finish, you know, whatever the result, it's, it's an accomplishment. And four or five hours out there by yourself with your escort boat, like it's, it's tough. Like it's, and it's bumpy and it's, I love this race. Like if this is the only kind of racing I had to do, I'd be super happy, you know, cause this is what I always dreamed of. And, um, but sadly, like this kind of racing is, it's kind of like a specialty race in the standup. So if you want to be competitive on the world stage and stuff, like you have to do these like course racing or like little races around the world. Yeah. It's almost like the, the surf tour. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the tour is actually not in great. Exactly. Exactly. But like pipeline, you know, is always going to be pipeline. Molokai is no matter what, like if you've done Molokai, like in Hawaii, everyone's like, oh, you've done the channel, you know, like that's crazy. Well, it's a big deal. Like we grew up knowing that as the Molokai Express. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a friend that he, he was crew on a sailboat, his friend's sailboat, and they sailed from Oahu to Molokai. Wow. And it took... 24 hours once Jeez. to do it because they got screwed in that current and yeah. the surf and yeah i mean so he they just couldn't sleep yeah like they had to keep tacking yeah yeah so yeah. bad things can happen out there i mean yeah for sure like and luckily we have escort boats to stay with us so it's not that dangerous but um still it's pretty scary out yeah. there and um but the in terms of the most challenging paddling race was a six-man canoe race in Tahiti that we went as our club, you know. And Tahiti, the paddling culture there is... it Paddling to the Tahitians is like sumo in Japan. It's like traditional. It's mainstream sport. Right. And the level is so high. And there's a race in November every year called Hawaikinui which is, I think, 130 or 40 kilometers Wow! in three days. So it's like you paddle 50 kilometers and then you sleep at the next island in a church, like on the floor with everybody. And then you paddle to the next island, you sleep on the floor with everybody. And the last day is as long as Molokai. So that was the most challenging, but it was probably one of the best experiences of my life. Yeah. This is kind of a, maybe a dumb question, but in, in these races, so these really tough races, yeah. 
have you pushed yourself to the point where you felt you were going to quit and then pushed beyond that? Um, yeah. And like a Molokai kind of race, like you call it the wall, like went two, three hours in, like you hit the wall, like, Oh, I can't do this anymore. Or I'm so tired. And with experience, you learn to get over that wall quick. It's like, cause you know, it's coming. Like, you know, mentally your body's and your mind is going to go, Oh, I can't do this anymore. And my first year doing it, like I couldn't get over that wall when I hit it for like an hour, you know, but I think with experience, you learn like just keep pushing and you'll feel better. So, um, yeah, there's many times you feel like you want to quit. And after the race, you usually say, I'm never doing this anymore. <laughs> but you got the thousand yard stare. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But two days later, it's like, I can't wait to do that again, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, you hit the wall, but like with anything, you know, you just got to keep tapping away, tapping away, and it usually works out. Yeah. What mental tricks or even physical tricks do you play on yourself to help you push through the wall? So like, I think... Is it, is it something that's systematized or... So I think... Um, it's all mental, you know, like, and this year, like when I was younger, when you're young, you know, you don't really think you have less knowledge and everything. And, um, you don't really think about how to get over the wall. Like you hit it and it hits you hard, but now it's like, so before maybe two weeks ago, I, fasted for three days and I love food but I was like this would probably be good to clean my system out and also to work on mental strength and I trained through the fasting and I realized like even when your body you have no food no energy like you can still paddle so that's you know something I'm gonna fall back on when I hit the wall in two weeks time like I'm going to be like, oh, I'm so hungry or like I'm cramping. But it's like, but I could paddle without food for 72 hours, you know, like I sh it's just all in the mind. Like that fasting is probably going to help me so much mentally when I get into that channel because it's all in your head, right? Like yeah. that, oh, I'm hungry, I'm going to die kind of thing. It's like. If you just get over it after a day, it's fine. So I'm going to think about the fasting this time around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, once when I, I first got my, my sailboat, it's more like a sail yak. It's like a 16 foot sailing, okay. you know, kayak, yeah, yeah. but um, it goes decently fast, mm. but I, it's only the second time I had taken it out and I went from Hawaii Kai to Waikiki. Okay. And this is during big surf. Yeah, yeah. And, had, you know, pretty strong wind. I think it was 35 miles an hour. Wow. Something like that. Wow. And then I decided stupidly, because I didn't know what I was doing, I decided to tack back to Hawaii Kai. Oh, God. And it's the dumbest thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was out there for 
actually ended up being almost 10 hours. Of really? Tacking. Yeah. And I, I finally got into Wanalua Bay at night. It was dark. Already. Okay. And, um, but halfway I hit what you would call, I guess the wall. Yeah. Where I was just like, I was shutting down mentally yeah. and well, physically too. Yeah. I was completely sunburned because my sunscreen all came <laughs> off because I hadn't planned on nine hours. No. Right? <laughs> and then, you know, I went through this whole like weird series of emotions. Like I started, I was crying mm. and then I was like, okay, this isn't getting me anywhere. I can't cry anymore. And I actually started like, you know, I thought I was going to die out there because yeah. I couldn't come in. I didn't know how to come in in that, that yeah, size yeah. surf. It was like four plus Hawaiian. Yeah. Day. And I was too dumb to know, like, I could have gone back to Waikiki. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you, you you're inexperienced. Yeah. And so I'm actually out there. I start talking to God, you know. Yeah. Like saying, all right, I'm going to die. Are you going to just, you know, are you going to take me here or what's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> and then finally I realized, you know, my back's against the wall. And I'm like, okay. I just have to keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I put my sail out, full sail, in high wind, you know. And to do that, to keep my boat from tipping, I had to sit all the way on the ama. Okay. Which meant I had to steer with my foot. Yeah. The, the, the rudder, the yeah. tiller, you know, yeah, with my yeah. foot. And so that's how I tacked, like, all the way back for nine, ten hours. Jeez. And I made it. But and you made it. I could clearly remember, looking back hitting that wall yeah where it was like i'm just gonna shut down and quit i'm gonna die out here yeah you think you're just gonna die yeah and then for some reason nothing happens you're kind of looking around like okay i'm not dead yet i just gotta do this yeah <laughs> and you just find a way to do it you get all this energy yeah. like i got yeah. tons of energy more drive yeah so i was just curious you know that's why i asked you that question yeah because, uh, i've been through something similar yeah, I think I think the body can do amazing things, you know. It's like but like they say like we only tap into like 40% of yeah. our capabilities. And when you're in a dis- desperate situation, like and you can get your mind around it, like like you said, you know, tacking with your feet for 9 hours, like you you could do that. You yeah. Know? So, I count on it. In two weeks' time, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what does your training regimen look like? I know you're here training before the race. Yeah. Um, I've heard a little bit about it from you, but could you go into more detail about how you're training? So um, it depends on the time of year. Um, like, I like to plan... Because stand-up is... We don't really have, like, a proper world tour. We've got individual races that are like molokai big race like we have big races and then there's like championship events so um but usually like january through to march is off season so that's when i do a lot of volume like i'll paddle two three hours and then go for a run like i'm doing maybe 18 to 20 hours of training a week but like right now in Hawaii is the last three weeks of training for Molokai. So, and the conditions here is downwinding. And I have a totally different board than what I would be using um, in the other races. So it's all about that feel for the water, just trying to get out there as much as I can and using 
the least energy as I can to go fast using using the bumps and feeling the water. So um, right now I've been so last week I would run three times a week for an hour, hour each, and then I'd do three strength training, and I would do one downwind run a day for six days a week. So it was like, and the downwind runs would be sometimes an hour, and sometimes I'd go long from like Makai Pier to uh, Waikiki, and that would be wow. like two and a half hours, yeah. So that's a fun one though. That is a fun one. Yeah. yeah. Lots of bumps to ride. I was actually, um, there was a yacht on the outside, like, uh, and we were going, we were together for like the whole way to diamond head. It was pretty fun. Yeah. So like, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's some bumpy water, like, especially around, um, like the Makapu yeah. point and stuff. It's like, famous for that. So that is the best training to do before Molokai because coming from Molokai, like the last 10 kilometers coming into Hawaii Kai is like so much backwash and bumpy. And yeah. so I just need, and it's, there's nothing like it anywhere else in the world. So the, the past three weeks have been just trying to get used to that. Yeah. What do you do for your strength training? So uh, it depends on the time of year. Um, but honestly, I just don't like getting in the gym. And stand-up is a lot of um, strength to weight ratio because you have this big board, right? And it's not, you know, the strength to weight ratio isn't as important as maybe cycling where like a, a kilogram can make you a minute slower on like a climb, right? But being as light as you can and as strong as you can, like is super important because one kilometer or one kilogram means just that much more underwater and that's more, way more friction, right? So um, I do a lot of body weight stuff, but from January to March, I do some um, like heavyweight, like low rep, um, just strength stuff to work on. But right now it's just push-ups, core strength, um, squat. And then I use kettlebells to like work on, um, like deadlifts and like just to work on the movement, you know, not really the strength. Right. Yeah. Just to get the right motions and when you're paddling, you know, left side, right side, you get the imbalance. But when you do the strength work, like you can really look at yourself in the mirror and make sure you're, you know, proportional, balanced. So it's kind of like more of a checkup for me. Yeah. Like the strength training, not really like building strength or muscle. Yeah. And for the, I guess the heavy stuff, are you mm. doing mostly, so you're doing mostly compound movements like deadlift, yeah. bench press. Yeah. So the basically like deadlift, single leg deadlift. Um, and then I do push ups, um, bench pulls, um, weighted pull ups and stuff like that. Um, but it, kind of slows down 
my uh, movement when I paddle, I feel like. Oh, because like, you're I a little feel, stiffer. Yeah, I feel stiffer. And yeah. it's all about flow, right? Like, I don't know about MMA or, like, jiu-jitsu, but I'm assuming they don't really do that much, like, heavy lifting. Like, it's more functional movement, right? Like, yeah. Because then you stiffen up too much. Yeah, you get really slow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... For me, it's more of, you know, keeping sharp. And I do like plyometrics and I do like hill sprints and stuff like that when I run. But in terms of heavyweights, it's just in that like early part of the season, just to, just to try and get a per 1% stronger than the year before. Yeah. Yeah, I used to do a lot of Muay Thai too. Okay. And I noticed... Um once I went from like 180, 175, 180 mm -hmm. to 185 even is sort of my ideal weight where I feel really good. Yeah. But I went up to 200 pounds once. Yeah. And it was so interesting. Uh, it doesn't sound like a ton of weight, you mm. know, 15 pounds or yeah. whatever. But like I would think, you know, when you're, you're boxing, you're throwing a punch and your mind is running at full speed. But I could not get my hands to move as fast mm. as they normally would it was like yeah. noticeably slow really yeah it's wow. a little scary like wow this is what happens when people go up a weight class yeah by, you know they're not cutting they're just kind of letting themselves go a little bit yeah and it really makes a difference yeah i think weight is like even if it's muscle it really makes a difference because yeah. i mean i always think like just walking around with 10 pounds on you you know that just makes you feel so heavy yeah. like so even if it's muscle like it's gonna feel heavier so i mean i'm right now because it's before the race maybe i'm like i'm i'm short too like i'm five six so i'm like 152 or 151 maybe but that's probably my best racing weight but in the off season when I'm doing the weights, like, yeah, I gain fat too. Like my body fat goes up too, but um, I'm like 165, you know, but that's kind of time for me to let go. Cause if you stay skinny throughout the year, your immune system kind of breaks down. Yeah. You can't handle the hard training, you know? Yeah. So when I'm doing hard training, I make sure I have some fat on my body. I noticed that from myself too. Yeah. If I get too lean, I actually feel pretty weak. Yeah, you start getting sick yeah. and you can't train day in and day out. Yeah. Even bodybuilders, like off season, I think they're around like 15%. Yeah. They just can't maintain that 6% body fat no, know, all year. No. It's not healthy. So, like, the thing was, like, I read like a Lance Armstrong documentary or saw like a Lance Armstrong documentary you know and I still respect the guy like how good he was as an athlete and he was always about like you can't stay skinny all year yeah like because you can't handle the training so I kind of I live I try to live that sometimes I let loose too much though you know? yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you seen the um that documentary called Icarus yeah I saw that maybe two years ago pretty intense that was fascinating yeah really shifted my paradigm on the olympics like yeah i mean i'm not a big fan of the olympics because i know like 
you hear that Olympics is just a big corporation, right? Yeah. And then every every country that or city that hosts the Olympics, like they suffer afterwards. Yeah. So um and it's crazy what people do to win. Not in our sport, I don't think, because there's not enough money in it. But if a win means you can live your whole life without worrying about anything, of course people are going to cheat. Yeah. You know, it's like... What tripped me out was seeing the Soviet yeah. shuffleboard team yeah. was doping. Yeah. I'm like, man, if those guys are doping, yeah. everyone's got to be doping. Yeah. <laughs> You're so, like pushing a little thing on the, you know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, how does doping help that, you know? Yeah. I just, but, how do you, I couldn't imagine. No. But there it was. Yeah. You know? Like, I'm sure people that get caught for doping is like 1% of, you know, yeah. everyone. Like. Well, that movie, it was it's like crazy. the entire Russian yeah. Olympic team, basically, yeah. right? The KGB went in there, yeah. switched all the urine samples. Yeah. I mean, that's like state-sponsored yeah. doping program. I mean, there's, you know, there's a guy, I forget his name, but he's like, he helped a lot of, um, a lot of athletes dope. Um, and he reckons most people that win gold at the olympics dope yeah like probably you can't you can't not you know or like swimming and stuff like they break records like every month world record like every month like they're doping for sure like i don't believe it i don't want to believe it as an athlete like i want to believe everything is clean you know because that's what clean sports should be the way the world runs right but there's so much money in sports you yeah know? It's, it's crazy how much money and just not that not only that but looking at armstrong's story yeah i mean there's just they basically from what i've read the i mean the american team basically learned it from i think it was the the uh doping guy from the italian team yeah. or something like Basically, they're all all the teams are doping, yeah, pretty much, yeah, and they just happen to win, you know, yeah. consistently. I think Armstrong would have won. Say the whole race was clean, exactly. I think he still would have won. That's his argument, you know. Yeah. I listen, I still listen to his podcasts, and I've listened to a lot of stuff that he's been on, and he's sorry for it but at the same time he doesn't sound sorry for it you know because yeah. he's like but he says like if everyone has a gun you're not going to show up with a knife yeah you know like <laughs> yeah like they had to get guns to do what they do right like it's just if cycling is corrupt you know like everyone was doping back then and they just kind of joined the yeah joined the movement and because he was so rich and he was so famous like they had to take him down like that yeah whoever's yeah. winning is going to get exactly exactly yeah. number 2 number 3 they're not going to care no but 
he's still rich, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually saw uh, research that these scientists did research on the Tour de France mm. and found that it was actually healthier to do that race doped mm. because it's so destructive to the body. Exactly. It's a brutal race. A lot of people say that, you know, like, why not? Why don't we make it legal? Yeah, Everyone can dope. Division yeah. Or something. Because that, like, it's going on right now, but it's not normal to do what they do yeah. at that speed. And those guys are so lean. It's not just like a healthy body person doing it. They're like 6% body fat. Yeah. And they are cycling for 21 days. You know, it's like. They're probably eating muscle. Exactly. You gotta be eating muscle. Exactly. Like, I just don't understand how they do it. And then they're putting out these power wattages that's like equivalent to like a heavy weight lifter. You yeah. know, like, I just don't <laughs> understand it. Yeah. I'm a, I kind of want to see just more sports, just create a division where you have like an anabolic division. Yeah. And everyone's just dope to the gills. Yeah. And they're hitting home runs all the time. And, you know, if it's, I mean, that's like, the open. that's like, um, it's like, like Super Mario, right? Like Mario gets the mushroom and they go crazy. He goes crazy, super <laughs> yeah. strong, you know, like I think, I think the biggest factor though is like a lot of that doping, like EPO and like anabolic steroids and stuff is like bad for your health. Yeah. So if there was no health issue, like, sure, like there should be a division. Or but like, it is still a choice though. Yeah. Like they're, they're making a choice to dope. For sure. So it is bad for you. Yeah. But it's it like is sort of voluntary. Yeah, it is. But then it would, it would be like, if you wanted to be in that sport, like you're going to have to take health risks, yeah. you know, and that's kind of. That's what bodybuilders are doing now. Yeah. Like pro IFBB. Yeah. I mean, they're all on steroids. Yeah. That's the only way you can have that compete, amount of right? muscle. Yeah. You yeah. just can't compete without it. Just doesn't look normal. No. I mean, that's why they created those <laughs> those other divisions now, right? Like yeah. physique and yeah. beach body or whatever. Because those guys don't want to dope yeah. and get that big. That's why I like sports like soccer or like base or basketball or something where like, yeah, the doping, it's more of a skill sport that doping can only help you so much. Yeah. Right. Like you've still got to be skilled and yeah. you, there's no doping for skill, you know? Yeah. So not until we get the, the Elon Musk implants. Yeah. Chipset. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, they talk about that these days and it's it's scary. It's like, yeah. where is sports coming to, you know, but I think I'm more of a traditionalist in that way. It's like it should just be the best man wins, you know, like shouldn't matter what because you got to have money to dope too like, yeah like the postal service team did like they could do it because they had money yeah like if a poor person tried to do it it could go so wrong you yeah know? totally yeah the protocols look really complicated yeah and that movie icarus it was like imagine sh like shooting yourself in the butt like that many times a day you know <laughs> <It's> yeah <laughs> It's pretty insane. So you think your sport, there's probably no doping? Um, I just don't s 
there could be, but I just don't see um, like the prize money and the sponsorship money is like, yeah, you're going to risk your health and your life to make 10 grand out of race. So it'd purely be like an ego play. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. It, I mean, ego play, like if there was somebody that was like, yeah, I just want to be the best guy in the sport. Like maybe, but they're all like, like surfing or like it's a water sport, you know, they're all pretty nice guys, but I don't know, maybe in Europe, you know, there's a lot of flat water racing. There's some guys that amateur guy that dopes or something, but I'd like, I'd, I'd like to think there's no doping yeah. or like there's no steroid usage. Cause if you have that in your head, like, well, someone might be on, on the juice, you know, it's right. like, you get on the starting line and that's mm -hmm. you've already lost already yeah you know <laughs> yeah so i'd like to th i'd like to think it's clean yeah yeah it's just so pervasive like even i mean my brother was telling me even in rock climbing like people are using peds yeah crossfit yeah i mean when it everywhere. becomes an olympic sport it's like if stand-up becomes an olympic sport sure like i'm sure people are gonna dope yeah you know yeah that's why I don't, I would never want it to become an Olympic sport. Should be a lifestyle thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What is your uh, supplement stack, I guess, kind of look like, if any? So um, I'm not really into supplements. Um, I'm more, I try to eat clean. Um, so um, there's, there's uh i i eat i don't just eat plant-based but um if i had the option i japanese food is pretty clean yeah. and my wife you know it's usually it's it's uh, brown rice miso soup um some vegetables and like pickled vegetables fermented and like small fish you know so it's pretty healthy yeah. and it's a well-balanced diet. Um, I don't really believe too much in protein because you should probably get it from what you eat. You know, there's so much food. Yeah. And um, non-processed food, but, you know, sometimes I'll eat chocolate or a cookie, you know? Like, I'm not, like, a super, super on it, but... I, I like to enjoy my food too, but when I have the option, I try to eat clean. Yeah. I just, I just like to know when food is on the table, like, oh, that's fish. That's vegetable. <laughs> yeah. You know where it came yeah, from. Yeah. You know what it is. Like, I don't want to be like, what's in that? You know, like those things I try to stay away from. Yeah. What is like a typical diet look like for you? Like an example of a day of eating? So, um, I, so intermittent fasting is big over here, but, um, yeah, I love doing that. Yeah. It's, I've been, I'm usually, there's no, it's not that big in Japan, intermittent fasting, but this guy, that's my chiropractor, my trainer basically three years ago told me like, I should probably sp skip breakfast in the morning because 
breakfast is like the meal that breaks your fast and it's only been around for the past hundred years right yeah like we're not made to like animals don't wake up and there's food in front of them like you wake up you're hungry and then you go hunt that's yeah. when you move right <laughs> so he basically told me like yeah you should just skip breakfast have two meals a day and you should feel much clearer and the first three days was the hardest thing. I was yeah. like, oh, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. <laughs> but after the first three days, it's like now if I eat breakfast, I feel lousy in the morning. So I eat two meals a day and it would be within like an eight hour period. So it would, you know, be intermittent fasting. Right. And um, the food that I eat is usually Japanese food. Um and I don't, I try not to eat like, uh, like white rice or, um, white bread, but if I don't have the option, I'm not picky. You know, it's like, if there's only white rice, like I'll eat white rice, but I try to, I just try to eat healthy. Like I'm not vegetarian. I'm not pescatarian. You know, I'm not, um, what do you call it? Like ketone diet or anything i think just having a well like well balanced life's a balance right like yeah and just having a balanced diet is the most important thing you know yeah. you ever do a cheat day i were i don't even have it like i cheat every day <laughs> <laughs> you know like i i would be like yeah i feel like chocolate I'll have a, I'll have a bite of chocolate and it turns into the whole bar. <laughs> but I try to make nice. sure it's like healthy chocolate. You know? <laughs> no, no, I love my sweets, but clean it, chocolate. If it's my uh, off day, like if it's a day I'm not training, I try not to like eat the chocolate because usually I'm burning enough calories where I know like oh I can have this beer. But if I feel like I'm over, I weigh myself every morning. So if I feel like I ate too much and I weigh myself and I'm like above the weight I should be, like I'll eat super clean the next day. Like I, I, I like to enjoy my food. And I think I don't want to be that party pooper too, you know, when you like get together with your friends or like someone offers a bar of chocolate and be like, oh, I'm not eating chocolate. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I, I just don't like being that guy like life's too short you know and an olympian once told me like he would have like a beer or two before his final because he has a beer or two every day you know it doesn't make that big of a difference you know as long as you know you're training and you're mentally prepared like yeah it shouldn't matter too much yeah but I stay away from potato chips and I never, I never eat that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Do you feel like, I remember Laird Hamilton saying he's actually in better shape in the off season than in the on season. Cause he's training so hard in the off season, mm. but in the on season, he, he said he can't train with the same volume Yeah. and especially not the weight. Like he does a lot of weightlifting, yeah. and, you know, the plyometric stuff, but yeah. some of it's pretty intense. And if he was to train like that in the on season, 
you know, it's just too much wear on the body. Yeah. Do you feel like you're in better shape in the off season? I'm not. Maybe I'm in better. Like, it depends, you know, what you look at it. I'm in better racing shape in the on season, like during season, because I'm used to racing and like my mind is right and my body feels good. But. I understand what he says when you're traveling a lot like you have like if you're traveling halfway around the world from Japan to London or Europe then that's you know three days you're not training like in the off season you would never take three days off yeah it's like half a day off or one day off so your body is like and you've got a you've got the gym you've got the environment you know like you go somewhere you have to figure out where you're gonna run you sh you're stopping more that kind of stuff so it's hard to train like you do in the off season during season but in that sense it's like it's good to make a home away from home right like right now i get to stay at you know risa and yuan's place and i feel at home like uh, my run course is from their house, you know, to Kapilani Park, you know, around the park and back. Like, that's my run course now. So I think it depends on, I think for Laird too, is like surface, you know, it's, there's no schedule. Like when the swell comes, you got to do it. But in racing, luckily, if we plan right, it's one race every weekend, but you have the other six days to train, right? You just got to plan ahead. Yeah. As long as you're planning ahead, I think I'm fitter during season than off season. Because off season, I I take like cheat days where I'm like, oh, I don't feel like training. I feel like hanging out with my kid, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And do you have a, a meditation practice? Um. So I... I have never really been able to meditate, but or when something I'm similar, when I'm on the water, I feel like I'm connecting, like something switches on, like I'm feeling the water. But um, so for the past maybe three weeks, I actually heard um, Laird Hamilton on a podcast talking about um. The Wim, like the Wim Hof method. Yeah. And um, I've been doing his breathing practice every morning. And I feel like I feel the difference. Like after I finish like the breathing 30 times and holding your breath and stuff. And he says your body's turning alkaline. Like I really feel it afterwards. So I try to do that every morning. Um and it's not meditation, but it gets me in good good headspace. And now if I forget to do it and I eat something like before I do it, I'm like, oh, shit, like <laughs> I messed up today, like something's off. So it's it's not meditation, but um, I think that like breathing is super important and after doing that, like even when I paddle, I focus a lot more on my breathing and I feel so much better. Yeah. Yeah. I started um, 
meditation a long time ago. Okay. And then, but recently only started getting more into the breathing okay. aspect of it. I mean, meditation always has like a, you know, it depends what kind of meditation you're doing. But How do you meditate? To, like, um, I usually actually just sit and then, um, this sounds bad to some people maybe, but I'll have a timer. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, um, cause actually I get lost in my meditation. Mm. Like I'll lose sense of time and everything, but I'll, I'll do, um, like the Wim Hof, yeah. you know, breathing. Yeah. Um, there's also a type of breathing that, uh, is from yoga. I believe, I think it's Banda breathing. Okay. But it was popularized by the Gracies. Okay. Um, so I is do it that. like where the, yeah, you're yeah. actually controlling your diaphragm. So yeah, I've been yeah. recently, um, practicing that okay and that's taking me to some like trippy mental states yeah really amazing and when i get out of it it's like i feel like i don't even need to breathe which is kind of scary sometimes if i do it before bed i'll lie down and i'm like i don't even need to breathe yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so oxygenated yeah but um i know what you mean like when i get done meditating and especially with that type where you're, it's kind of focused meditation because you really have to concentrate on actuating all these little muscles in your diaphragm and your mm. abdomen. And um, it's just like my mind is completely clear. Wow. You know, like you're in that flow state, just like when you're paddling or yeah, yeah. surfing, right? You're yeah. in an instant flow state. Yeah. But you can achieve that state just sitting down. I wish I could meditate, like, but. When I try and like close, I don't know. I've never really looked it up really, but it's like when I, I'm always thinking, you know, and I can't clear my head. Oh like, yeah. What well, a lot of people, when they start meditating, they get frustrated because they feel like they shouldn't have any thoughts coming mm. into their head. But what I learned was actually even like monks will have the thoughts coming in their head. Huh. But what it is, is the practice of, letting the thoughts come in and you're just focusing back on your breath, the breathing. And then the thoughts, you learn that the thoughts just become noise and the noise gets fainter and fainter. Really? So the thoughts are always coming in there. Yeah. But your attention to the thoughts, if you practice meditation, it's decreased to where it's just this silent, you know, just kind of noise in the background. And it's no longer this racing head or, huh. you know, that kind of thing. So do you just, what kind of meditation do you do? Do you just sit there and you just. I'm focusing on the breath, breath and the, and then with the, the Banda, you yeah. know, you're focusing also on, you know, controlling your abdomen. So you, yeah. you exhale, I'm not an expert at it, but you're exhaling. And then on that exhale breath, you're sucking in, you know, your diaphragm, yeah. just like a vacuum. And then yeah. you start actuating these different muscles. Huh. And you might try that only because yeah. a lot of people that have trouble just sitting yeah. and breathing, yeah. if they add that active component in there, yeah. it's like giving you something to focus on. Yeah. And it's much easier for them to sit there huh. than if you're just sitting there kind of slowly breathing and yeah. these thoughts are coming in. You're not really doing anything else. A lot of people have trouble with that. Yeah. My mom actually meditates a lot and it frustrates me because <laughs> <laughs> she's one of those people that's like, yeah, you just sit, clear your mind, connect from the head to the ground. 
and you just feel, and she like literally feels stuff like yeah. she's been doing it for a long time I believe it. and like I'm like there she goes again like <laughs> yeah. I could never do that but maybe I'll try that because lately like the reason why I started um doing the the Wim Hof method and stuff was because you can always try and do more add more to my training and stuff but like same with when I the reason I did the fasting too was like but more is not always better yeah sometimes you just gotta like become lean you know like cut all the things that you don't need to do so you can focus on what you've already been doing it's kind of Pareto principle yeah 80 20 Yeah, yeah yeah so like Maybe I'll try that, you know, because I've always been in. I wish I, I always wish like, man, I wish I was able to meditate like one of those guys, you know. Yeah, I could send you some links. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Please some do. tutorials. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Speaking of Wim Hof, do you have a do you have a ice bath and sauna protocol that you do? So um, I've never... I do so in Japan we have like the onsen or right. like the sento is like uh, just like a normal public bath right and they usually have like cold water hot water so when I'm feeling sore and I'm tired like I like going in in the onsen and um, I do like hot water cold water but it's not really like a regimen or anything like I probably should and but i like going in the bathtub and i think um like like i i was saying yesterday like laird hamilton was talking about how good of an effect like the warm therapy has on your body and when i go into the bath like at night i feel significantly better the day after so I don't understand how people in the U.S. just take a shower, you know, because <laughs> like, in Japan, you take a bath, like yeah. hot bath, like every night you stand there for like 15, 20 minutes. And it's so relaxing. Like I, it's probably in my blood, too. Like I could like I could never just shower, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I know Rhonda Patrick her research was describing it as heat shock proteins. Mm. So when your body is heated, you know, beyond its natural yeah. you know, temperature to the point where it feels like it's actually dying. I mean, you don't feel like you're dying because no, it's no. not that bad, yeah. but your body, like when you're in a sauna, yeah. I mean, it's actually quite uncomfortable to be it in is. a sauna it for is. a long time. And I don't feel like I'm ever dying in the sauna, but mm. your body actually thinks it is because it's yeah. getting so hot and you're just dripping i mean yeah. buckets of sweat right yeah. to try and cool off and during that process your body releases these heat shock proteins yeah. that are actually anti-inflammatory so if you have a hard workout or yeah. you have you know joint inflammation from your workout yeah it'll actually help reduce that yeah inflammation and, and you, same with the ice yeah you do the ice right like you do the sauna and the ice yeah yeah and that became necessity for me because right around 38 to 40 in that range, I noticed when I would work out or spar or something, 
I would just be in so much more pain and the recovery was so much longer Yeah, that I just almost by necessity started having to do these things just to yeah. keep going at the same level. But yeah. when I was in, when I was your age or even in my twenties, yeah, I didn't need any of that stuff. Mm. Like I would just recover. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of understand what you're saying too. Like when I was early twenties, I could eat anything, you know, Jack in the box, like in and out, and I'd still be performing the next day. But now it's like I eat that that crap food and yeah. I'm like next morning like in the toilet like for like thirty <laughs> yeah. minutes, you know? It's or you like, just feel kind of heavy. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think, you know, performance doesn't go down as you age, right? Like it's all about being able to optimize your performance by doing the sauna or you know the breathing or ice bath so i'm i'm actually um gonna try and do an ice bath like every day until the race like just buy a ice every day and then yeah. go in the bath how long do you go in there for uh it depends on the temperature so if you have it really cold like some guys will do 32 Fahrenheit, yeah. I think, or just, you know, just a little above freezing. Mm-hmm. Um, then it seems like from what I've read, it's a pretty short cycle. Like they're in for, you know, two minutes to five minutes, yeah. something like that. There's some guys on the extreme end, they'll do 10. But um, as the temperature goes up, you can still get efficacy. Like um, even at 50 Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. which I don't know what Celsius that is actually. But, yeah. Um, that's actually kind of on the warmer side. Okay. Uh, it's still cold. Like yeah. you'll get numb yeah. at 50 degrees. <laughs> For sure. But um, you have to stay in longer, like 10, mm. 15 minutes. And I notice I'll get a really good anti-inflammatory effect from even really? 50 degrees. But uh, it, two minutes is nowhere near long enough at that no, time. No, no. So I also discovered from an experiment I did um, based on what Laird Hamilton does, like, because I heard him say he'll do even nine times or something, he'll do sauna, yeah. ice bath, back and forth. Yeah. And so I tried that, not nine times, but I did like maybe three. Yeah. Um, and the effect was a lot stronger than just mm. going in once. So I'd go in the ice bath to the point where I just couldn't take it anymore, yeah. which ended up being like, you know, five or 10 minutes. Yeah. And then I got out. I waited till I kind of warmed up a little bit yeah. and I went back in again. And wow. I did that three times and the effect was way better than just once. Just once. So yeah. I guess the more you do it, the better, right? Yeah. yeah. That must have yeah. common sense yeah. probably. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I saw a video of Laird doing that. Like he'll run from the sauna, jump in the ice bath. Yeah. And then he'll jump out. Yeah. He's just in there for, seemed like maybe three minutes or something. Okay. But it's really cold. Yeah. And then he'd run imagine. back to the sauna. Yeah. And then he said he's addicted to ice and sauna. Yeah. I like mean, when he talks about it, it seems like he is like he's all about the ice and yeah. the sauna. Yeah. And I can believe it. I mean, my body feels like a 20 year old. Yeah. When I get out of the ice bath. Yeah. And he's 55 or something. Yeah. So he doesn't move like it. <laughs> Mad you know? respect to that yeah, guy. Yeah, for sure. So but whatever he's doing. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Cause, yeah. Because at 55, I want to be, you know. Yeah. Doing what? Yeah. you do right now exactly you know? exactly he has not slowed down so. no way <laughs> um what are your long-term goals 
for your sport, uh, you know, your career yeah. and in life, I guess, in general? So I think um, in sport, like I was saying, like I want to like, um, so paddling kind of saved me in a way because like I was saying with soccer, like when I had to call it quits, like paddling kind of revived my passion for living, you know, and the ocean, even if it's surfing, like it has the potential to heal people. And I think there's a lot of people in Japan, especially working people that we're an island country, but not many people get to see the ocean or, yeah. or get on the water, you know, and I want to, um, with what I do with sports or like getting the results or, you know, helping it become more mainstream, like influence more people to get out in the water. So that's kind of my goal with paddling, you know, like, yeah, of course, like next weekend's race, like I want to win it. You know, I always want to win every race I go into, do my best, you know, um, and the titles are important, but a result is just a result at the end of the day. Like I could win as many Japan national championships as I want, but two days from the race, I'm not going to be like, yeah, I won the race. You know, it's yeah. like life goes on. Right. So I want to try and, um, build and influence more people to get out on the water and um just kind of enjoy paddling you know the people that paddle on the water like i want to help them out with training or like you know more knowledge and for the athletes that want to go overseas and test themselves like i want to help those guys as much as i can too and um my goal in life is to be healthy and you know, I have a daughter now. It's probably the best thing that's happened in my life, you know. And um, I just want to make sure that I'm there for her and the family as much as I can be, you know. And the lifestyle I live right now, like, I get to be with the family more than a lot of people do. So I just want to try and, you know, live this life as much as I can you know and if worse comes to worse we just move to bali or something and you know spend time together all the time you know not a bad that wouldn't be a bad life exactly <laughs> by any stretch of yeah. the imagination like growing up you know i feel like family's everything right like and japan kind of loses that in a way because when they hit elementary school or middle school like Fam the family doesn't eat dinner together yeah. anymore, you know, and I don't want that in my life. Like I want it to be a tight knit family, you know, even when my daughter grows up, it's like, yeah, we have family dinners and stuff like reunions, like a couple times a year. And a lot of Japanese families don't have that. So um, I just want to be there for the family. Yeah, that's. It's not a big goal, but it's, I think it's super important. Yeah. How do you think, um, this might be a really tall ask, but mm. like, you know, Japan post-World War II yeah. had one of the most amazing, you know, 
recovery stories yeah any country yeah and i think a big part of that was that the people and that cultural ethos where you know duty and sacrifice yeah and that's what really built the country into what it is today for sure which is a just an economic powerhouse if you think about how small the population is in relation to other industrialized countries it's amazing yeah but how do you think that you know the culture could get back some of those the family values again like it's almost like they retain that what was required for their rebuilding yeah like i don't know if that level of you know sacrifice is still required today i'm not sure i could be way off base and maybe it is yeah but i, I mean i i know what you're saying that's why like the the family unit yeah from what i've seen you know, yeah. quite a few families like yeah. there is a lot of suffering in a way from that sacrifice for I mean, sure. they don't see the fathers for sure you know their relationship with the mother is is often kind of yeah you know strained and the school it, the regimen is just soul crushing yeah I mean, you either you pass that high school entrance exam or you're kind of doomed yeah exactly like which is sad you know like and the biggest thing is like in the U.S. or in a rural country, like family is so important that like if you have a kid, it's not just the parents taking care of the kid. It's the it's the parents, it's the grandparents, you know, like, yeah, everyone comes together, helps raise the kid kind of thing. But in Japan, it's usually the family is a single unit. The grandparents don't really get to see the grandchild too much and there's not enough support so like a lot of mothers suffer from trying to raise the kid by themselves luckily yeah. my parents and my wife's parents are pretty hands-on with our, like we make sure that we raise our kid with everybody you know because right. that's super important but i think after world war ii um Japan, Japan's a very proud country. Um, The history, you know, is like dates back more than a lot of other places. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing, but it kind of got destroyed, right, in World War II. And Japan doesn't have natural resources. So the only option for them to come back was economically. Yeah. Right. So and the answer was. You know, they're so dedicated and they've got, you know, like the Bushido and like super proud. So they put their life into work. Yeah. And um, I think it's changing a little bit in Japan right now. Like those people that were, you know, 30 in 1945, you know, they're what, like retired now. And that generation's kind of fading out. And there is, um, there are laws in place now where like once every, or, or like once every two weeks, it's a four day work week. Like, but uh, most people still work overtime, Yeah, you know? So there are like, I think we're moving away from that, but at the same time, it's, uh, Japan's a very, um, what do you call it? It's a centralized country. Like everything is in Tokyo. 
Yeah. If you go outside of Tokyo, there's, it's still like, you know, like the whole family raises the grandchild kind of thing. It's very country, country's mm-hmm. country, but it it's almost like you have to be in Tokyo to make something of yourself. Yeah. So if we move away from that, I think there's so many beautiful places. Like it, there's places like Hawaii and Japan, you yeah. know, but we need to decentralize. And um, I always, it's hard though to decentralize because yeah. being in Tokyo is convenient. You want to fly out, like it's only an hour train ride from my house to Haneda airport. You know, it's like, if you go to the countryside, it, it's a hassle. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the balance that everyone's debating. But hopefully it decentralizes and people start taking up agriculture and stuff. But everyone loves technology, loves working now. You know, it's like. I wonder if it like something like that starting to happen in the U.S. where because of technology and the movement into freelancing, mm. less full-time employment. Yeah. I mean, I think the stats are like half the nation is going to be, you know, freelance pretty soon. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's massive. And so there's all these people now moving out of the cities yeah. into the, you know, the Midwest or these yeah. small towns where you yeah. can get this really high quality of life. Yeah. And yet still be able to get paid pretty well. Yeah. It's all online. That's the irony, right? Like you live in the city and you're making more money, but you're spending so much more money. Yeah. You know, it's like. And if you look at your, like I I really examined my lifestyle in San Francisco. Yeah. And it just wasn't really healthy. Like the hours that I spent working, then commuting, then eating out, then you know, actually, like I was never in nature really, even though nature is all around me. Yeah. It just wasn't happening. For sure. You know, where, so I'm wondering if Japan, once it embraces this remote work style. Yeah. You know, I think it's going to happen. It is. Then you might see people, because there's a, there's ghost towns forming in Japan now. Oh, yeah. Because people are leaving and going to Tokyo. People are giving out houses. Yeah. Cities like are paying free. people. You know, artists and stuff, you know. In beautiful areas, too. Beautiful. But people are too proud, you know. They're like, oh, I don't want to move away from Tokyo. (laughs) But I think that's kind of dumb, you know. But at the same time, I'm not in Tokyo, but I live in a... It's not the cheapest place, you know. Like, And with the work I do, like with my job, I could live anywhere. Yeah. But it's like when I think about my daughter's schooling or like just convenience, you know, it's, it's hard to leave. Yeah. So, but I think Japan's moving away from the centralized, like being in the cities and stuff. But I think the politicians need to change too, you know, like Japan, Japanese politics is pretty corrupt. Like it's very, uh, outdated let's let's just say it's every time i visit there's some politician you know crying on camera getting busted for something exactly like, it's really exactly. interesting like it's just that the perception of japan is like that stuff doesn't happen from an yeah. outside perspective yeah. you know because it's so regimented yeah. there's so much 
you know, honor and, yeah. you know, a, a emphasis on not losing face. Yeah. It's like, you can't imagine people even trying stuff like that. But Yeah. But, you know, with the internet and stuff, like, I'm sure hundred years ago, like, there were so many more politicians that were corrupt. Probably. Yeah. But yeah. Since we're seeing it. it yeah. Now. Yeah. That we're just seeing it more, I think. Yeah. What is your advice for someone that, um, especially I think in Japan that has this dream to be a professional athlete, like mm -hmm. a, a professional paddler, you know, stand up yeah. paddler, um, surfer, anything. Yeah. Um, but they're, you know, facing down this, you know, pretty tough regimented system or society, even yeah. maybe parental pressures, yeah. where, which can be huge for you sure. Know? For sure. Um, what advice would you give that person that that really wants they have that dream they want to realize it, yeah. but they don't think they can? Um, so in Japan there is a lot of pressure, society pressure. Like, you graduate college, even if you do water sports and stuff, you graduate college, you become a businessman. Like, if you went to college, like that's what you got to do. But um, my advice would be. Like, if you have a dream, just follow it, you know? It's like, I did that out of college, you know? You have job hunting, right? Like, job hunting is huge in Japan. Your senior in, year in college, you spend the whole year job hunting. Well, I never job hunted, <laughs> you know? I didn't, I never wore a suit. I knew what I wanted to do, and I just kind of kept paddling and, you know, doing what I love to do, so... And now that I'm 31, it's like, even if you do that two, three years after college, like, you could always start over. You're so young, you know? So if, if you have a dream of, you know, if you're an aspiring paddler that wants to travel around the world and do races and stuff, follow your dream. Like, make it happen, you know? Like, go in debt from your parents, you know, ask to borrow money, whatever. Like there's, you can't turn back the clock. You know, you're only, you're only in your prime, like then and there. Like I'll, that's the thing with paddlers in Japan. They'll be really good, but then they'll stop paddling for a couple of years because they get into work. And it's hard to have like a work-life balance in Japan. But when they become 30, like their job backs off a little bit. So they get back into the water, but then they've missed their prime to work on experience and stuff. So I'd say follow your dream. And if you want to be professional, like do it because you love it and learn English. Yeah, because you can't get sponsorships from board brands if you don't speak English, you know, and it's hard to race overseas and travel if you can't speak the language. You just get homesick. Yeah. Yeah. English will take you far. Like, I'm, I'm super lucky to be able to speak English. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And um, where can people find you online so they can follow you and see um, what you're doing? Just the usual, you know, like Instagram, Facebook is my Facebook page and Instagram is what I use most. So, um, yeah, just if you search Kenny Kaneko, like it should pop up.
for both those. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right, Kenny. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time and and being on the show. It's an amazing story. Yeah. Thank you. Um, great conversation, and I think a lot of people will get a ton of good stuff out of it. So. Yeah, it was good talking story. Fun. It's fun to reflect on my own life too you know you never sit down and talk about it yeah so yeah 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 as risa says everyone's got a story exactly yeah that's the truth thank you yeah thank you yeah hey i want to thank you guys so much for listening make sure to check out the other episodes at tyrobinson.com forward slash podcast or on your favorite audio streaming platform of choice until next time i will catch you guys on the flip side Thank you.